Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Leadership jobs are some of, if not the most sought after roles. But stop me if you've heard this. It can be lonely at the top. And even leaders need an experienced person to lean on. That's exactly the gap that today's guest, Christine Lorette, aims to fill. Christine is the founder of Authentic Leadership Coaching, a company that helps leaders become better at what they do. With an HR diploma from Confederation College in hand, a career in media didn't seem like an obvious path at the time. But an opportunity to join Due North as a media assistant changed all of that. Christine excelled at media buying and planning and parlayed her experience at Due North into senior roles at CanCom Entertainment Group, Deutsche LA, and OMD. She joined Zenith as their executive vice president and moved into the role of president when the opportunity presented itself. Christine has worked with an impressive roster of clients that include the likes of Apple, Rogers, and Mitsubishi Motors, to name a few. She's taken all that experience and returned to her HR management roots with authentic leadership coaching. Coaching as a whole is just such a great phenomenon that has come through. I mean, I've, I've used coaches myself through many years of my practice. And so leadership coaching really is about helping people find a way through their blocks. It's a way of doing the work together to ensure that they are leading through their values and through who they believe they are. It is about getting through those blocks and finding the right answer. It really is about being values-based and leading that way. It's, it's such a phenomenal way to live your life and lead through your career. Christine, I'm really looking forward to our chat, but I want to go back to the beginning first. Where are you from? Born and raised in Thunder Bay. Love it. I, I spent... Uh, the first quarter century of my life there, and it's been phenomenal. Um, I, it was a lovely place to grow up. I grew up around family. I'm the youngest of eight kids, a uh, huge family. And Did you say of- the youngest of eight kids? <laughs> yep. Oh, jeez. <laughs> the youngest of eight, and I have, you know, 50-odd nieces and nephews and great-nieces and great-nephews and great-greats. I, I was an aunt when I was a year old. And, a, you know, and it just kept going from there. So it was phenomenal. It was uh, a really family-based uh, environment. And it was lovely. I, I got nieces and nephews and nieces and nephews. And I, I still, to this day, like, you know, I just found out that one of my nephews is having a new baby. And it's like another new great niece or nephew coming. I can't wait. I don't even want to think of what it's like to track birthdays for everyone. <laughs> like that's gotta be, it's gotta be wonderful and a mess at the same time. It is. It's a crazy constant mess, but it's so lovely. Like it's just, it's a family full of love and uh, special moments and just, it's just a great thing to do. So in my family, so Christine is obviously my name, but like Auntie Kay has sort of become the, the mantra for for my family with me and i i feel it's just a privilege a privilege for me to have so being the youngest in the family does come with its privileges but is it even bigger deal when you're the youngest of eight 
Because it seems like in families, when you've got more than two kids, you're really looking at the top and the bottom. Who is the oldest? Who is trailblazing for everyone? And then who is the youngest? Who? I, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm the oldest in my family, and there's only only myself and my younger brother. But do you kind of eternally become the baby? Well, I was baby for the beginning part of it, like when I was a child. But then I became an aunt when I was a year old. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it kind of changes things quickly. So I think I was older when I was younger than I actually am now. Like I, I learned responsibility pretty early on and not in a bad way. Just I, I, you know, got to look after lots of little kids and figured out how to do stuff. And because my mom was um, one of 11, she was the second oldest in her family. And she grew up in that sort of environment where you, you raise your siblings and my siblings raise me and you know, I'm very close to all of my siblings and all of them. I lost my brother uh, last September, but one of my brothers, um, but the other seven are still here and we are very close. And it's it's an incredible honor to be part of a family that is so loving and so considerate of each other. Well, my condolences on that. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, though, a little bit about Thunder Bay, because it is kind of small town Ontario, but in, in the context of where it's located in northern Ontario, correct me if I'm wrong, like along with Sudbury, it is one of the two bigger cities. And I say that in like air quotes, if you could. <laughs> yeah. It's it's the big it's the big town in all the little towns. For sure it is. And so growing up there, like, I mean, we were sort of like the center of the smaller towns and which was great. And it was a big little town for sure. Like, I, I, other than that, it's hard to say. Like, it's just, uh, you know, all the people came from all over to shop in that area. It was like the mecca of, of that sort of northern region. I mean, we're like six hours from Winnipeg, so it's pretty far north. And <laughs> it was uh, freezing cold. <laughs> I, I have this radical story about my dad when I was growing up, and he used to, like, go start my car and like take the snow off my car. And as the baby of the family, you sort of go like, Oh, you're a special snowflake. And, <laughs> but it was, it was so lovely, but it was just like, you know, when I first moved to Southern Ontario, I couldn't understand where people plugged in their cars. Ah, uh, like, You're talking about the block heaters, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, because when I moved here, I was like, like growing up, like you plug in your car in the winter time. And so, like, I was going to college at Con College, and I was just like, where do you plug in your car? <laughs> <laughs> because your car doesn't start if it's not plugged in. <laughs> no, it and doesn't. Then, that's for sure. And then, of course, I was quickly corrected into the prospect of, like, it's not that cold in southern Ontario. I don't think I wore a winter coat for the first four years I lived here. I was just like, I don't know what you people are whining about. It's not cold here. <laughs> You're like minus 10, hold my beer. It's not even yeah, correct. Like the day I left home, it was minus 41. Oh my God. Minus 41. <laughs> Please tell me that was at least with a wind shell. No, it was minus 41. Like it was just like, I was like, this is what happens here. This is the way it is. Like it's, it's just cold. And, you know, even still to this day, people always whine about winter here. And I'm like, put on a coat put on a hat, you'll be fine. When you finally moved to Toronto, did you have any culture shock? 
Other than being told not to hug the bus drivers, yeah, because I, I was pretty friendly. And it was, it was, which I know sounds creepy, but it wasn't meant that way. Um, no, 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 not at all. No, I totally get that. <laughs> I just, I was super friendly and super open and talked to everybody. And I think a lot of people would just sort of look at me funny. Um, I got, I got into the hang of it pretty quick. Like I remember being on a subway once and somebody was like reading a book and they, you know, we're all crowded in and standing together and they were like hitting me with the spine, the book. And I looked at the guy and I was like, stop doing that. <laughs> and he gave me the face. And I literally, by the, the next time we got to a stop subway stop and the doors opened, I grabbed the book and I threw it out, which was aggressive and I probably shouldn't have done it, but it was pretty funny. <laughs> he was just like, I don't know what you just did. And I was like, I told you to stop doing that. Like, that's not cool, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny that you mentioned, though, hugging the bus driver. I've never done that, but I lived in Scotland for a year. And the decorum there was that after you got off public transit, if you were getting off through the front of the bus, you always said thank you or cheers to the bus driver. And I found myself doing that when I moved back to Toronto. And they would look at me like... uh, you're welcome, I guess. Or other people would look at me and be like, that guy's being a little too polite or what's he trying to do? Like looking like a suck up. So yeah, no, I'm with you on that, that there's, there seems to be some certain level of decorum depending on where you're from towards your public transit operators. To this day, I still do that. If I'm getting off on a bus and the driver's there, I'm like, thank you. Like, I mean, it's not, it's, I don't, I don't know that it's odd. I just think it's polite to say thank you to somebody. If you're like, seeing the person who drove you where you're going. It's just, Probably makes their day as well. <laughs> well, let's hope. Cause I mean, that's, that's a rough job. That's, you know, they've got to deal with a lot of different personality types and you're like, be pleasant. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with being pleasant. So growing up in Thunder Bay, what were your interests or hobbies? Like what kept you busy? My family. Um, you know, I, I thought about this question and I, I wanted to sort of come up with something that was super interesting. And it really, I, from the time I was 10 or 11, when my sisters were having more babies and, and there were, you know, more kids around, I really, I spent a whole lot of time with my family. I, you know, looking back at it, I wish I was more outdoorsy because I wasn't. And I did a lot of babysitting and I did a lot of like, you know, my mom was a phenomenal cook and obviously she fed our family of eight (laughs) kids. (laughs) And she just, she was always doing that. So I learned a lot about like homemaking skills, which is kind of strange, but like just looking after family and looking after kids and how to take care of them and like, you know, feeding people. It was really about that. And I mean, as I got a little bit older, you know, got into like the going out scene and doing that kind of stuff. But it was really, if I think about what I got out of being in Thunder Bay, it was really family. And speaking of family, they gave you your very first job ever. There were no shortage of opportunities to babysit, correct? Correct. Yeah, no. I babysat from the time I was 11 (laughs) and spent a lot of time. And, you know, what's great about that is that I have nieces and nephews who are in their 30s and 40s now who are having their own kids. And I know all about them. I, I feel very connected to a family that is as large as mine is, which is amazing. Like I was connected to them. I knew what they liked. I knew what made them laugh. I knew, 
you know, what they like to eat. I just knew all that stuff when we got to do movie nights and babysitting nights and hanging out at the park and doing all of that kind of stuff. It was amazing. And you know what? Learning how to take care of people, even at that early age, is such a gift. It's a gift to understand how to connect with people. And that's, you know, if anything, through my, my whole career, I, I credit a lot of that to the fact that I learned how to listen to people and, and read people and understand who they are. Like, it's such a it's such a gift. So you'd say that a lot of the passion that you've got for coaching and leadership came from your days being an auntie. Yeah. Or, I mean, and- you're the size of your family. I mean, you're you're a mentor to how many? I mean, you many. know that number. Many. We'll just <laughs> yeah, say many. More, more than 50. But more I mean, than, okay. And, and, and I'm so blessed because they taught me in return, right? Like learning how to coach and learning how to be a good human comes from listening and learning how to listen. And that is such a powerful thing. And everybody's different and everybody receives information differently and gives information differently. And when you look at that, it's so, so powerful. And just to like the ability to learn how to listen because you love these people, right? Like you want the best for them and you want what's going to make them grow. And you just that that there's a there's the heart connection to it. So looking back at what you just said there. A lot of coaching and leadership experience comes from what you what you were doing with your family and how you were helping them out and just being there for them in general. Have you ever put that on a resume or brought that up in a job interview? Because I feel like that's the really kind of invaluable experience that is kind of hard to quantify and communicate, but definitely definitely deserves to be recognized when you are going for a leadership position. I'm not sure I quantified it that way. I'm sure in every job interview I've ever had in my life, I've talked about my family because they're such a huge part of my life. But yeah, I think I think it's just about learning how to listen and learning how to sort of disseminate information and come back in a kind way. Um, one of the best interviews I have ever, ever had was with Peter Volney for Griffin McCall Volney. And he's a crazy, brilliant man who, Australian guy, and was leading the agency. It was a small group. Um, and he, the, the best thing he ever asked me, he was like, what, what really annoys you? <laughs> that, that, that's was, a good question. <laughs> and, you know, I'm in this interview, we're an hour in, and he's kind of an irreverent kind of person, and so am I. So I said, well, I really hate being shushed. Mm. And he was like, I don't understand what you mean. I said, well, I'm the youngest of eight. I got shushed a lot, right? Like, let's call it. And he was like, okay. He's like, so you don't like being shushed? And I literally, he laughed his ass off the entire time I was talking about this. And so, and the entire time I worked there, anytime anybody tried to like quiet me or make me be quieter, and he was just like, she doesn't like being shushed. And I promised her she wouldn't do that in this job. (laughs) We would (laughs) not do that to her in this job. And so my first, I worked there for about a week and a half and we had our first client dinner with Hillary Firestone from Teletoon. And he showed up at my office door with a seven foot rubber plant 
thing. It was my corsage for the evening. <laughs> oh God. And I was, it was just, it was so funny and it was irreverent and lovely. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's just one of those moments in your career where you go like, God, he so got me, you know? And I think that's really important. Something I learned from him, which was, you know, get the people who work with you because it makes such a difference in everything you do. Let's go back to, I guess you could say your other first job. You said you sent out a hundred resumes before you landed, (laughs) before you landed at a legal firm doing just assignment and grunt work. So, I mean, how did that come about? Was that the, was that the only one that, cause it kind of sounds like they were the only ones that called you back. So I had been doing babysitting and um, like au pair kind of work, sort of like doing the, you know, nine to five over the summer for, for people who are working. And I decided I didn't want to do this anymore. Like I was going to do an office job. And I just, so I sent out, I don't know, a hundred plus resumes in Thunder Bay. I got a response from this law firm that was in the middle of a court case who needed somebody to do organizational work. So organize all the affidavits and all the stuff that was coming in and sort of be the girl Friday, so to speak, if that's still an acceptable term. I've never Uh, even heard it, but what does that mean? No, seriously, please drop some knowledge. (laughs) So, well, girlfriend is just like somebody who's on standby to look for stuff when you need it. So I basically had a boardroom full of archive boxes, full of files. And when somebody needed something, they said, I need this file folder from this meeting on June, whatever, go find it. And so you've got to go hunting. Yeah. So my mom, who was a seamstress, this is hilarious. My mom, who was a seamstress, made me an outfit for my first day on the job, which was a beautiful dress. And I showed up, hair done, makeup done, heels on, beautiful new dress my mom made me. I'm 15 years old. <laughs> okay. And then they showed me this boardroom. And for every other day that I worked there, I was in running shoes and jeans and a sweatshirt. Because my whole job was <laughs> to search through boxes and bring stuff to people. <laughs> and it was hilarious. It was a fantastic job. Because it taught me the importance of organization and understanding what was where and sort of the importance of being on call and being and how important, regardless of how unglamorous the job was, how important it was to like know where stuff is. And it was a great summer job. I I made a ton of money for myself at the time, considering what I was doing. And it sort of, you know, sort of set my mindset to a different paradigm than I had thought of before. Was it a conscious decision to go to Confederation College and stay back at home? Or was it just something about the program or the college and it just happened to be in your backyard? So I I did this kind of crazy thing. So right out of high school, um, I went to Fanshawe for a year on fashion design. Oh, so you moved down to London. Okay. So I moved down to London and it was, I, I started right out of high school. So I started that September at 17 in Fanshawe and turned 18 in October. And so I did that whole year and it was, my mom was a seamstress. I used to help her do stuff 
and I, I knew that skill. And I realized probably about two or three months in that this was probably not for me. But I moved back home at the end of that year. I did okay in that year, but I was, you know, I was pretty young. And I came home and then the following year I decided to go to the Confederation College because I was just, I had decided I wanted a different path than I had originally decided on at all of 17 years old. And uh, it was sort of like, okay, let's find a way through what I was thinking at the time, which was it was hard to be away from home. I was the youngest of a big family and I wanted to stay closer to home while I figured out what I was going to do. So that's kind of why I ended up there. But I loved it. I, I it was a good it was a good time while I was there. I learned a ton of stuff. I thought I was going to end up in doing arbitration and collective agreements. And that's not what I ended up doing at all. <laughs> Obviously. Welcome to media. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What did you learn about yourself? in London. We've already established that you come from this really enormous family, but that, like you said, that was your first time being on your own. You were doing it relatively young too, at 17, you said, yeah. So the September yeah. of your first year in college, you were 17 years old. Technically in the eyes of the law, you were still a couple of months away from being an official adult. It was ridiculous. The stupidest story I can tell you, which is hilarious, is that I grew up in this big family. So I did groceries for the first time on my own at 17 and I spent $300 and this is like, you know, I'm old. <laughs> this was a long time ago. Are you trying to feed everyone <laughs> in Fanshawe? Well, no, but this was the thing. I, I, well, I was in my own apartment for the first time because you can imagine I grew up in a family of eight. I never had my own space. So it was my first full-time apartment all by myself. It was a bachelor in London. And I literally, I didn't know how to shop for one person because I had never done that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm buying like, you know, the two liter bottle of ketchup. And I'm like, this would take me a year to eat this. Like it just, I didn't have any sense of projection of like how this was going to work. And I was like, you know, when you make stew, you make stew for 12. You make spaghetti Mm, sauce, you make it for 12. Like, it was just one of those crazy moments where you're going like, okay, I really don't know anything about how to do this. <laughs> My parents were so brave and so supportive, even though like this was not their idea. They were so good about it. They were just like, yep, we're going to let her go. And my siblings were so instrumental in doing that. Like my sisters especially were like, let her go, let her try, let her go. Like, it'll be okay. <laughs> The fact that you had so many siblings, I I imagine some of them already had gone away for either university or college. So they probably trailblazed for you. So by the time it was time for you to leave the nest, your parents were probably like, yeah, we've done this a number of times already. Nothing new here. So so my brother before me uh, went to college in Thunder Bay. And before that, nobody had gone. Like my parents are from Quebec. They moved to Ontario when after the first four were born. So the second four were born in Ontario. So yeah, it was it was a pretty new situation for our family. And, you know, like I said, my sisters were like, she can do it. It'll be fine. It'll be great. She can do this. You know, they they really did. They really did take a chance on it. And I'm so glad they did because, you know, it was a great learning experience. And 
you know, it wasn't, it didn't end up being the right thing for me at the end as the first year, but I came home and I did something else and it was good. Technically you were the trailblazer then for moving away for school. I was the first one to move away for school and, <laughs> and I really didn't prove that point very well. <laughs> Uh, no, that's no, no, no. Okay. If I could say anything right now, the fact that you had gone away, you were so young and after your first year, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to drop any more money into this that, because this isn't yeah. for me. I'd say that's a pretty mature decision. I went to university with a lot of people who by second year, they're like, this isn't for me, but Hey, I'm already in second year. So I might as well finish third and fourth year and get this over with. And then they completely pivoted after university. Maybe they went and did a college course in something completely different, but they stayed the hell away from what it was they were studying. They spent a lot of money on that. So yeah. kudos, <laughs> no kudos for you to saying, you know what, I'm going to pull the plug on this because I cannot see myself doing this for the rest of my life. It was something I loved to do, but it wasn't something I could see myself earning a living at. So I was like, yep, this is not work for me. Tell me about your first job at a college. I worked at McLean Hunter Paging. So when I got out of college, there was internships, of course. And so I wanted to get the highest paid internship out of college. And that was my goal. And so I had two interviews that were in Toronto. I was living in Thunder Bay. And so I got the highest paid internship offer. And I was super excited about it because I was like, yep, this is the way it's going to be. And my mom was so funny because she was like, I accepted it without telling her. And then she, she was just like, I don't understand why you didn't ask me. And I was like, well, we've been doing this for like three or four years together. Like, I don't understand what the problem is. And so I moved to Toronto. I got an apartment. I was about two blocks away from my brother, which was very important to my parents because I was, you know, moving to big, bad Toronto. And I, I was working at McLean Hunter Paging in the HR department with somebody who had graduated from our program a few years before. And so within about two or three weeks, we figured, they figured out that um, Rogers Cantel had bought out McLean Hunter Paging. And so everybody who worked there had almost been duplicated from other roles within the organization that had purchased them. So my first job was 12 weeks of walking people out with pink slips who had been there for 20 plus years. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> and I knew that, you know, every other person who had gotten this internship through our college had gotten a full-time gig out of it. So I had, you know, moved oh, my whole no. life here. Oh, yeah. I was like, okay, so now I don't have a job and now I have to pay rent. And oh, my God, how am I going to do this? So... <laughs> So a few weeks after the buyout and I was doing this walking people out and pink slips, it was horrible. It was just, it was a terrible job. That, that is the dark side to HR. I didn't, I've taken HR courses in university and they never really touch on that part, but I imagine when you're in the full program, it has to come up. How do they prepare you for that? Like, how do they teach you that? Hey, you're going to have to let people go. You're going to have to disrupt their livelihood. It might not be because of any decisions you've made, but you're going to be the messenger. I'm not sure they do. In full honesty, I don't think I was prepared for that. But I think they just say, like, it's part of the job and you have to be, you know, a good corporate citizen and do the work. Um, but obviously, I was, you know, in my early 20s and a little bit too cheerful for everybody's sake. <laughs> 
which I learned pretty quickly on was probably not productive. <laughs> um, I disagree. Yeah. Joy is contagious. Well, not when you're being termed after 20 years of working somewhere. They were just, you know, it was it was hard. Um, it was a very good lesson for me uh, personally because I learned, like, you know what? It's you, you do your best, but sometimes it doesn't work. And you just sort of have to take the high road and do what you can. And it learned it for me, it taught me to protect myself um, and my staff along the way on what was the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. Um, but yeah, it was it was challenging for sure. And so I ended up meeting uh, a woman through my brother who worked at an ad agency that had just started up. I think I was the 11th person hired there. And so I interviewed without knowing exactly what media buying was <laughs> and uh, ended up in an agency. And it was fantastic. It was a, an incredible experience. They were lovely people. I still talk to some of them to this day. And so we're talking about Due North, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can we say that that was your first media gig? Because yeah. I like to highlight yeah. that in these chats. That was your first media gig. Yeah. It was my first media gig. I was the 11th person hired at Due North. Um, Mark was incredible and Virginia and Jill, they were all great. And it's just one of those things that it was just a crazy time. And I couldn't, like, I remember looking at, like, I was doing uh, newspaper buying for Goodyear at the time. And I, I, like, I couldn't, I was like, how am I going to remember how many newspapers there are in the, like, all of Canada? This is crazy. <laughs> but it does, after a time, after a bit of time, there's repetitions that happen and you just, next thing you know, you just know where they are. Like I started my media career as a media assistant or account coordinator at CBC. And I never thought I would memorize the local stations. And it's like things like CBUT and CBNTYT come just, naturally. I don't know, just like, like naturally to me. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly it. And but it, did you just find like you had a moment where it was like, this is overwhelming. And then after maybe about four weeks of doing it, you're just like, Hey, wait a minute. Kind of like when someone is trying to learn a second language and they're getting frustrated. And the next thing they know, they don't even realize that they're speaking conversational, whatever it is, French or Italian without even realizing it's kind of like everything you've learned finally starts to make sense. And, and it does. And for me, it was all about the people. Like I still, to this day, the first uh, media rep I ever spoke to was Maria Germonte. And I still speak to her to this day. She was working at Sun Papers and she was so helpful and so just adorable and just like wanted to help me understand what was going on. And to this day, we still speak. And I mean, that was a gajillion years ago. Not that we're Either of us are very old, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I know. I know what you're saying. I, I, I kind of just people who aren't in the media industry that ask me about our profession. I always tell them that it's kind of like a high school cafeteria and like every table is like a different company, whether it be a supplier, ad tech vendor agency or whatever. You never really know when you're going to end up sitting at someone else's table. Like you could be serving them, trying to make friends with them the whole time. And the next thing you know, whoops, I guess we're working together. It's, it's insane. And so like, I, I could name probably a dozen names, but it was like, 
there was just all of these people and they all like we were all in the same bit like business but we were all in the startup part of it like we were all assistants or like coming up onto stuff and it's amazing how through the years that you work in the industry that everybody comes up together and you you start to know everybody and you start to like go oh yeah you know this person and you know that person and it's like it's just lovely it really is like everybody's there to help each other and it really is a relationship business you were at due north everything was going well what uh, made you move to cancom entertainment <laughs> I'm going to say this. It is a very hard game to increase your salary in, especially 27 odd years ago. Um, And I feel like I had learned what I was learning there and I wanted to move on to the next thing. And so I decided to jump and jumping is, you know, a big deal when you're a junior and you're just like, do I want to do it? Do I not want to do it? I'm going to learn more. What if I get in a bad place? <laughs> oh, no, I hear you there. Well, okay, so let me ask you this question before we go any further. Did your parents have basically the same job their entire life? Or yeah. did they, exactly so same with my parents as well. I think my mom had her job before she had me and then had another job when she went back to work after so many years. But my father, I think in his span had two different jobs maybe three, I think. Yeah, no, two different jobs. So it's kind of like we were conditioned to believe that if you move to another job, that might be a bad thing, especially if you do it in a short, over a short period of time to, I guess, in the eyes of our parents, it would have been like, you only lasted a year there. How's that even possible? You're supposed to last, it's last until you're 65 and collect your pension. Like, did you kind of have that kind of feeling going through you? Cause I felt when I started my career, I had that going through me as well, quietly going, no, I've got to stick here for well, X number I of years. I absolutely agree. Like my mom was a, a stay at home mom. I mean, she had eight kids, so she wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> that is a job and a half. Like <laughs> there's, she's there's definitely no... the CEO of her household. Yeah. Well, and, and she was a seamstress and she did that all the way through her, our entire lives, which is amazing. And so she was, she was a homemaker as well as a seamstress. And she did this to bring, you know, extra money into the family, which was incredible. My dad was a pipe fitter. So it was a union job. And mm. that's what you did. Like you go from thing to thing, from job to job. And, but that's what he did. So there was not this idea of like jumping. And so I decided I was going to change jobs and I got this job, which was incredible. And, and I loved it. And it was a very different thing than I had been doing before. Like the, the account was very different and it was a smaller group, even though that I had started a small agency. And I sort of had this pattern through the beginning of my career where I worked for like smaller agencies. I didn't work for the holding co's for a very long time. And there's something to be said for that because you know, when there's a small group of people, you, you gain more skills. And yes, I it agree is with that. slightly terrifying because you're like, what if I don't know how to do this? <laughs> but there's something to be said for, and I've said this throughout my whole career, and I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. It was like, how hard can it be? I can learn stuff. I'm smart. I can, you know, I'm not saying I'm smarter than anybody else, but I'm smart. I can figure it out. And if I ask for help, then I can get help, right? 
And so I ended up at CanCom and it was on Universal and it was, which was movie business, which was very different than the stuff I had done before, which is primarily like aftermarket auto and tire. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to try this. And I did that. And that was very fun. And, you know, cause you were working on movies, which was exciting. <laughs> oh, uh, believe me. I, I was kind of like the de facto movie rep for a number of years at different companies. And I like movie business. I like knowing that I've got a schedule ahead of me. I like knowing that every different title presents its own different challenges and so forth. I like that you can do your research on the products. And you know what I like about it too, is that no two movies are alike. So, okay. That's not completely true. There are sequels and there are ripoffs. I shouldn't say it like that, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but there are movies that are pretty identical, but from different studios. But I kind of like that. I was like, okay, now that I'm done with this on to the next one. It's not like I was hitting the repeat button on that film three months later. No. And like different demographics and different things. And like you learn about like what can be said to who at what time of day, like if it was a horror movie, you couldn't talk to, to teenagers. That's true. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was, there was a, a big learning curve in it. And the people, I will say this, movie business people are movie business people. They tend to stay in that same industry for a long period of time, whether they're client side or agency side. And they know their shit. And it's a really great place to learn. One thing I didn't like about movie business, and some of the clients I've had would agree with this, is that they really had no control over what the critics were going to do to the film. Like they would, they would spend copious amounts of money. There'd be a lot of hype around it. And then the critics would get their pre-screening and start to tear it apart. And then opening weekend would not be the opening weekend they wanted. And then they wouldn't get, uh, they wouldn't get a week to buy. It would just be completely scrapped, forget about it. And then maybe we'll put money behind it for home entertainment. Yeah, very true. If you look at this and I don't think a lot of people do, I think, um, especially at where I wasn't that part of my career. Like you're not looking at it as a business. You're looking at it as the entity of all. And it's not, it's, it's part of a, a system that functions and doesn't function based on popularity and popularity is not something you can control. You just have to learn to go with it and sort of affect what, what change you can and acknowledge that there's some things you can't change. You cannot change the critics. Yeah, I guess movie business is the one client where you have to learn to get over it and move on to the next project or the next title immediately. Like, I, you can't say that about any other, uh, I don't think you can say that about any other type of client, that's for sure. No, and you just go with it. It's like next. Everything yeah. about movie business is about next. What's next? I will say, though, I learned this about movie business, not to digress too much, but yeah. one time early on, someone told me on the other side of uh, the aisle, they said, if a movie gets shifted to February, chances are it was torn apart. They weren't able to put it back together with reshoots and the studio just wants to, they just want to cut their losses. <laughs> <laughs> like they literally are just like, we're done with that. And they want to get it off their lineup for sure. Yeah, that's it. I was like, okay, I mean, as long as you're not canceling the campaigns, because I was a rep at the time. So I'm like, okay, so yeah, I don't have to explain anything to anyone. But at this role, though, this was your first time managing people. Yeah, and it was awesome. They were great. Could we also say that this was your first time starting to become less of a player and more of a coach? Yeah, probably. I, You know what? I still had to do my day job, but I think I also, it was the first time I was managing people and supervising people. 
And, you know, uh, oddly enough, most of them, I think, were probably older than I was. Um, and I was, you know, I, I grew up, at, like, I grew up in a family that was older than me. And so I didn't really have any issue with it. And it was really kind of funny because, like, I remember one of the people I supervised was, like, who was older than I was, was like, you know, so I'm this age. And I said, yeah, that's cool. That's no, not a problem. And, and she was just like, oh, you're good with that? And I was like, yeah, no, it's all good. Like, we're going to work together. And I think that's probably my tact for most things is like, let's work together and figure out how we're going to do this together. Because, you know, a team is a team. I, I never really had any issues with it. And it was just like, how do we figure it out? Roll your sleeves up, get it done, figure out how to do it. <laughs> And to so this what, day, I still say that. I'm like, okay, how are we going to do this? Like, let's figure it out. Can't be that hard. No, when you say it like that, like it can't be too hard. And and everyone's got skin in the game and you're working as a collective. Things yeah. do tend to get a little bit easier. At least a lot of tension comes off your shoulders, I find. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, we all have tension and we all have like responsibility. And as you go through your career, you sort of figure out more and more about what you've can and can't do i think at that point it was just like pretty open and pretty shared i mean the more senior you get there's some stuff you can share and some stuff you can't share (laughs) but you do the best that you can to support the people around you so what brought you to gbv did you find the role or did the role find you i found the role and i was ready to do something other than movie business which was unusual at the time i think because I think lots of people sort of just decided they were going to do that forever. I decided I wanted to try other stuff. I just wanted to get exposure to other clients. So I went to Griff McCall and Volney, and it was a lot of aftermarket auto and a lot of uh, the Teletune was there, which I really wanted to work on. Kia was there. And so, um, so I got there and a few weeks later, we split the accounts between uh, Lawrence and I, and I, you know, my primary client was Teletoon at the time, which was exciting because it was a TV station, which was something I kind of felt like I understood because of movie business. And it was about kids and I loved that. And I did a lot of aftermarket auto, uh, Mercury, 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 I can't even say it, Mercury Marine. And a bunch of other stuff. And it was great because it was a full service agency. So I had started at Due North, which was full service. And then I went to CanCom, which was just media. I don't mean just as in like air quotes, but I mean, it was not a full service because all the creative came from the U.S. And so I worked there and we worked with a PR department and creative department. And it was great. And like I said, Peter Volney was completely irreverent and lovely. And so got to do that and loved he's it. the gentleman that gave you that uh, rubber plant, right? Yeah. He's the one that gave me my <laughs> six foot corsage. Yes. Hilarious. <laughs> and so one of the individuals you worked with there moved over to Deutsche LA and you had the opportunity to come over and this must've been very exciting for you because you had the opportunity to launch Mitsubishi motors in Canada. Yeah, so he actually was an account person at Griffin Bacovolny, and he became the client at Mitsubishi Canada. So Andrew Gray, so he he moved over, and 
So we spoke and he was just like, I'd love for you to come and work with us if you want to. And so I ended up interviewing with um, Colleen Kelly, who was a managing partner at Deutsche LA. And so we all came to the conclusion that this was a good idea. And so I was there and I think I was probably the third or fourth person hired. And uh, so they had hired some of the account people and I, it was just, it was a lovely experience. It was, you know, death by fire, but it was, it was, you know, like it was an agency that didn't have any infrastructure. We were down on the waterfront at Queens key and it was an incredible, you had a good view at least. Yeah. We had a great view. And it was an incredible experience. I was there for, I don't know, a little more than a year, I guess. And, you know, we were living and dying by the day. And uh, Gail Drove and Mark uh, Morrison, was, they were both phenomenal partners. And just, just so intrinsically a family. Like, it was this little group of people who was making this massive thing happen. Are there parallels to launching an automotive brand for the first time and working on movie business? I mean, hear me out for a second, because every movie that you're launching is brand new. It's a new movie, so it's it's kind of a one and done. And even though Mitsubishi Motors is looking for sustained success, they really only get one chance for a launch in a new country. Like, did you find any parallels there? Yeah, well, I think it was like as big as you can make it. So what's different about movie business than like packaged goods per se is like it's one and done, right? Like you're in, you're out, it's a short term, it's a big spend. And with automotive, it's seven times the spend. And it's, you know, it's gonna go over a year, but it's gonna be like a waterfall. Like it's gonna go up high and then travel down. Mm. And we started with with the auto show, which, you know, how many times in your career do you get to launch a car brand? Like, it's so rare. It's very rare. That is a unique opportunity and a half. And it was fantastic. And all of the partners that we worked with were great. And they were just like, they were, everybody was so excited. I mean, like it never happens, right? Like, <laughs> And so it was just, it was a phenomenal experience. And Andrew and Gray at Mitsubishi and all of the team at Mitsubishi were just phenomenal clients. And we just like we worked night and day all together as a team. And I would say that is the theme through my entire career is like you just you become friends and family with the people you work with and they become the people around you. And they're just your your night and day like they just become the people around you who are supporting you and cheering you on and we're cheering them on. And it's just it's kind of an amazing industry that way you had a chance to move over to OMD and work on, I'd say probably the mother of all clients, Apple. I've had a chance to work with them as a rep and I know that they're very specific and they know what they want from advertising and they know where they, <laughs> want. and I mean this sincerely, they know where they want to be. Like sometimes, sometimes you're not even really working with them on the plan. They come to you and go, here's where we want to be. This is what we want to do and we want to buy it. So when you started working on Apple, what product was all the rage in that moment? Was it the iPhone at that point, iPod, MacBooks? So it was iPod. iPhone was about a year away. And so it was a 
iPod and sort of Mac versus PC. That was where I started. Those were clever ads. I really wanted to work on Apple. I, you know, I think like everybody in the universe, they think it's going to be super creative. And what you realize is it's really about rigor. As you said, like they know what they want. (laughs) Yeah, they do. I had the, I also had the great opportunity to work on the iPhone launch in Canada, um, which was an amazing, amazing opportunity. We got to work with Rogers when they launched it and it was such a phenomenal experience. It was, you know, learning to work on something that's global like Apple, where you are, you know, a cog in the wheel, but you're also part of something that is so massive. Like there's two sides to it, right? Like there's like, you're part of this global rollout, which is amazing. And then you're also like, you like, you want to do all your own little stuff, but you're like, oh no, we're going to assimilate, which is okay. And then when iPhone came out, it was just the greatest experience ever. Like got to work with some amazing people at Rogers. And then about a year later, we got to pitch Rogers as OMD and OMD won the business. And uh, I was lucky enough to be able to work on the Rogers business as well. So what brought you to Zenith and how did you find the EVP role? Like, I have to imagine it found you because no one, when you get that high up the, uh, the food chain, you're not really posting those roles on the company website. Like, Hey, we're looking for an EVP. They're, they're kind of doing it covertly in the background. So I was working on Rogers at OMD at the time and lots of things had changed at Rogers. And I was looking for, you know, my next challenge that happens in life, right? It's, it's got nothing to do with the agency. It's just really about what you were doing at the time. And so I was on a board, I don't know, on a board with a committee, I think. And I was on a committee and I met somebody that was at Zenith at the time. And I was sort of, you know, floating some stuff out there through, you know, your, your contacts, air quote, your contacts. And, uh, and I, I heard that uh, Frank had come to Toronto after Sonny had retired and I was looking to sort of do a next thing. And I really wanted, at this point in my career, I wanted to learn how to run an agency and uh, that was going to happen where I was. So I was like, okay, like, let's look for the next thing. And, you know, I, I had been there almost nine years at OMD and that was my longest tenure of anywhere that I had worked at. And I loved my time there. And so I was like, okay, like I really need to find something special to leave. And so I met with Frank and, you know, Sonny had just left and he was doing a new thing and, you know, uh, things were a little challenged at Zenith at the time. And I was like, you know, I would like to try and help. I would like to try and see if I can do something there. So I left and I, you know, I, I took the role and, Shortly thereafter, Frank went back to New York, (laughs) Frank Friedman, and uh, he was phenomenal. And then I got the president role and then I was like, okay, I have a whole new job again. Let's look at what this is. (laughs) So how did your day-to-day change from EVP to president? So EVP, I was still running a piece of business and president, I wasn't. I was running the business of the agency versus the client business which sounds like the same thing, but really isn't. Um, it's, it's, it goes back into like the fundamentals of business of like what's profitable, what's not, how do we do this? How do you staff it properly? All of that stuff versus the 
are you making the client happy? Are you doing what you need to do? Are you moving their business forward? It's about moving the agency business forward versus the client business. Did you miss not being in the bullpen and working on a, a specific piece of business and being kind of, I guess, out of the action a little bit? Yes. <laughs> Did I answer that quickly enough? Oh, yeah, no, that was, uh, <laughs> that was very you know, convincing. You know what? I, I learned so much um, running an agency. I learned uh, so very much. But I missed the client contact because you're no longer the point of contact for that client. And I think, I, you know, in hindsight, that was probably what I was great at, if I can say that. You know, I think I'd have a couple of clients that would support that sentiment. Um, but yeah, it was it was a much different uh, perspective on the business for sure. You've managed a number of internal promotions throughout your career. What advice would you give to someone listening to this who says, hey, you know what? I like where I am, but I want to climb the ladder within. I, I really think learn what that job is. You know, we and I would say this as a whole in the industry, we have a really bad habit of promoting people into jobs that people don't know how to do. So if you're really good at buying, they promote you to being a supervisor and you've never actually supervised anybody. It's, it's a really, it's a big shift. So learn what that job actually is. Like go to HR and ask them for the job description. Talk to people who are in that job. Like, what is it that they do every day? That's a really big change. And so, you know, and generally speaking, nine times out of 10, people are looking for a promotion because they want to make more money. Like, so are you looking to make more money or are you looking to change what you do every day? Like that analysis internally is a big deal. If, if they're, you know, if you want to move up, and you want to do that. So find out what that next role is. Talk to people who actually do that role, if you can. I mean, it's not always easy to do because if it's a small company or a smaller group and you don't want that to be known that you're looking, uh, reach out to somebody in the industry. One of the greatest things I can tell people to do is find a mentor. Find somebody who you respect that and be brave and put, you know, put on your big girl pants and ask them to be your mentor. Ask them to, to give you advice. Somebody who's actually been there and has gone through this because they will give you more insight than you'll ever have on your own. And it's so important. I've done it a few times and it has scared the crap out of me every time I've done it, but I've always been so grateful I did. So you say something interesting there about going to someone and asking them to be your mentor. I don't do that. However, I can tell you that I do have mentors and if they're listening, they don't probably don't even know they're my mentors, even though I do everything you just said, they're like, ask them for <laughs> feedback. Well, the reason being is I found that as soon as you ask someone to formally be your mentor, this kind of happened once to me, the relationship changed. Like it seemed like everything I did, they were like, well, we're going to prepare you for this. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm not looking for preparation in this instance. <laughs> we're still... Yeah. We're still friends and doing stuff on a casual level, but it felt like every every moment we were together, and and it's 
obviously platonic the way I'm saying it, even though it's not going down that path, is that they felt they literally they thought that every moment was a teachable moment. I'm like, no, no, not everything has to be a teachable moment, but I will bring it up to you when I do want to be taught and I, right. I feel I do need it. So that's why I always felt that it was at least for me better to just not let them know that they were my mentors and literally just poke and prod them exactly like you said, when. I've got challenges and pick up the phone or get on email and say, Hey, you know, what would you do in this instance here? Hey, I'm looking at this. Whatever works, right. Is for best for that person. So I always went up like a bunch of levels, like way above my pay grade. <laughs> There's nothing and, wrong with that. And I was always, always terrified. They were going to say no, or they wouldn't know who I was, even though I knew and followed who they were in a world where we didn't have social at the time. But it was just like, I really, I, you know, I want you to push me. I want you to ask me stuff I don't know so that I can understand what I should be asking. Like, I really wanted to understand where they were coming from. Because it was just like, you know, when I grow up, you know, and I say, I say that now, you know, I, I've just started a new business. And I'm like, when I grow up, this is what I want. And so I think it's just good to be curious. It's good to ask questions. And whether you formalize that question or not, up to you. But it really does, you know, don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. And don't be afraid that you're going to look silly. Because sometimes you're going to be silly. And that's okay. And you'll learn from it. And you'll get better at it the next time. Like, there's just, there's just so much... Um, hierarchy sometimes that's not necessary no i agree with you there just don't be afraid of looking foolish sometimes you're going to be foolish it's okay you're going to get past it it's nobody's going to remember it for like the next five years you're just you know you'll move on that's true we sometimes we're like goldfish in this industry where if we forget immediately yeah well and you know hero to goat in five minutes like good lord that happens all the time <laughs> yep <laughs> Where did the idea for authentic leadership coaching come from? After I left Zenith and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, I had a career coach that I was working with. She kept asking me where I wanted to work and I kept figuring, I was like, I don't know where I want to work. And so this, this went back and forth for some time and I realized I wanted to work for myself. I wanted to do my own thing where my values were the, the grounding of where this business came from. And so I thought, you know what? I have lots of experience. I have a couple of decades under my belt. I've done lots of different jobs. I've worked with lots of different types of people. And I really wanted to have the in-depth relationship with people that would actually help them achieve. Because at the end of the day, that's what makes me happy is seeing people be successful. And so authentic leadership is based on the premise of learning what your values are and leading from that, whether it's your life, your business, your job, your family, whatever it happens to be. So authentically being who you are and leading from that set of values. And that's where it came from. And it took a while. It took about eight months. And uh, when I landed on it, it really, it really resonates well with me. And it's, 
what makes me get up in the morning. It makes me smile. And I talk to my clients and they have breakthroughs. And I'm like, I get off the phone and I'm like, yes, that's <laughs> awesome. This is exactly what I want to be doing. So it just, it just, it feels, it feels right. So if people want more information on authentic leadership coaching, where can they get it? ALcoaching.ca. Want to yeah. drop your email in there too? Yeah, sure. It's um, Christine at ALcoaching.ca or they can call me on my mobile. It's on my LinkedIn. So if you want to find me, that's where you can find me. And uh, I'd be happy to help anybody who wants to have a chat, just even if they just want to sort of figure out where they're going. Like I, I'm a resource to be used and I've got lots of experience and, you know, not everybody's experience is the same. Um, but I, I'm kind of family based and integrity based. And uh, I love having that conversation. I think it's really important for people to live a life that they want to live. And if they're feeling stuck or they're feeling pressured or they're feeling like they're not happy, like you get one life, leave, live your life, man. Like that's all there is. Christine, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I'm ready. All right. Your favorite movie. Oh my God. Shawshank Redemption. Really? Why that film? There's just integrity in it. There's just something about discovering the truth. I love it. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? <laughs> oh, I've been asked this before. Julia Roberts, only because I love her laugh. And I think, you know, mine's equally obnoxious. Okay. <laughs> Jeez, I don't find it obnoxious. Thank you. <laughs> kind. Very kind. Okay. So a follow-up to that. If Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story starring Julia Roberts, what would we call the film? Not done yet. Why that? Because I'm not done. There's so much more to do. I love, there's just so much more to learn. Your favorite book? Uh, Sink, Float, and Swim. Give us kind of like the back page or the back cover summary of that. Well, you have a choice in life, whether you can sink, float, or swim. I actually found this book through uh, an offsite we did with AOL when I was on Rogers a million years ago. And uh, it was it was pivotal in my life. It was pivotal. I read it every single year, and I'm so grateful for those people who who took me to New York and and had me uh, participate with them. And it was just like you you have a choice in life. You can sink, you can float, or you can swim. And it's really about making sure that you're taking care of yourself and you're feeding your brain the stuff that you need, whether it's sleep or eating well or taking care of yourself and resting and, you know, filling your brain full of things that are good for you. It's just it's it's a pivotal book. It's so important. The best advice you have ever received. Be yourself. I know people say that all the time. And because I'm you know, kind of loud and I laugh a lot and I'm a little bit silly. Um, people always want me to be more serious. I've, I've gotten this advice my entire career, like be more serious. Don't laugh so much. Don't smile at everybody. I'm like, listen, this is who I am. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> and people just want you to be what they want you to be. You just have to be yourself. 
there is nothing else that matters. And it's so much more comfortable to be in that mindset. Yeah, well, and you're allowed to think you're allowed to breathe. You're allowed to be who you are. And if you don't fit where you are, find a different place because you fit somewhere. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would it be? What would it be? It would be to follow your dreams. I know that sounds lame, but follow your dreams. Uh, believe in yourself because other people don't have to. Just you have to. My signature closing question. If you had yeah. not gotten into media, what would you be doing and why? I would probably be negotiating collective agreements, oddly enough. That was sort of the track I was on before I fell into advertising. But I have to say, now that I've landed in coaching, this is the perfect place for me. Christine, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This was fun. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.